This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chasley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stock sink, global investors spooked by rising COVID cases and second wave fears. Beijing braces parts of the city in lockdowns. Authorities confirm a new COVID cluster and Regeneron's research. The biotech firm's president joins to discuss their antibody cocktail treatment. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Great to be with you as always this Monday. And we begin the week the same way we ended last week, in fact, with volatility concerns clearly not going away about a rise in COVID cases amid the ongoing challenges of operating and life in a pandemic. Let me give you a look at the global picture. U.S. stocks heading for early losses of well over 1%, more than 2%, in fact, for the Dow. We are, though, off the lows Asia, meanwhile, also having a really tough session today. The South Korean KOSPI fell almost 5% amid concerns about new COVID-19 cases there. We saw Chinese stocks falling some 1% too. A combination, as I mentioned, of a new COVID cluster and economic data keeping investors on edge. Let me walk you through that. China's industrial output rose for the second straight month. That's good news. Though the consumer, I have to say, remains very cautious. Retail sales down now for a fourth month, a drop this time around of almost 3%. We've got U.S. retail sales data tomorrow that we'll be talking about this time tomorrow too. The cracks in the spring rally that took the Nasdaq to record highs began to appear last week. We saw the Dow ending down some 5.5% after moves of 1% or more in every single session. Volatility, as I've mentioned. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow said in an interview yesterday, there's still a chance for a V-shaped recovery in the United States. The administration remains upbeat, it seems, even as Jay Powell warns of a weak economy for years to come. Let's get more on all of this in the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us this Monday. A V-shaped recovery for what? For stock markets, which is kind of what we've seen. For the underlying economy here, I'm still a deep skeptic. Yeah. I mean, look, the stock market was really priced for perfection, wasn't it? Priced for a perfect V uh, shape recovery in the economy. And certainly that's not what we're seeing on Main Street. The, you know, the front page of the Washington Post this morning has a, a story about how there will be jobs probably lost forever in parts of the economy that will take many years to recover. And you just repeat that sort of storyline in newspapers uh, around the world. And that's the kind of discussion we're having here. So not how quickly we can get back to normal, but how much damage will be done along the way. And I think that's what investors are finally starting to, to grapple with here. I'll be closely watching to see just how these losses might be contained. You're very right to point out that they keep bouncing off the lows here. So 2% losses look like we're, they're in order here, but we'll see if, if they find some buying. But look, if new 
new outbreaks in Beijing, 18 states in the U.S. that are going in the wrong direction in terms of, of cases. And many of those are states that have started to uh, gingerly reopen. So a lot to work through here. And investors, I think, are just having a bit of a reality check. Absolutely. And the economic case for optimism here was, to your point, reopening. But as we've said all along, reopening doesn't necessarily mean re-engaging in terms of customers here. The question is, what stimulus, what next is needed right. to try and support the underlying economy? Quick uh, review here from Pete Navarro, White House trade advisor, saying more stimulus is coming. Listen to this. One of the key thrusts of any phase four and, and any economic plan going forward has to be manufacturing jobs. The president is very interested in something on the order of at least two trillion. It is an election year after all, not the three trillion dollars <laughs> that the Democrats want, but two trillion brings us to the kind of five trillion in total that you and I again were discussing at the beginning. That's absolutely right. And you're starting to see the contours of the argument that's going to be here, right? You know, you have the Democrats who want state and local uh, bailouts. They'd like to see $3 trillion. They'd like to see an extension of those unemployment benefits that are richer than normal. Uh, Republicans would not like to see that. They would like to see maybe uh, some kind of a, a payment for going back to work. The president wants a payroll a tax cut. He's really keen on that. And you heard Peter Navarro say that the White House wants to buy American, hire American. They want to really make sure that there's uh, manufacturing. Uh, the manufacturing sector is is, is juiced in, in whatever kind of stimulus, stimulus is next. And of course, Republicans also want liability shields for companies as they begin to hire people and start to do business again. So you're getting, I think, the contours of what uh, the package, what the discussion will be for the package. And I think more money is probably coming. Yes, I think so too. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. To China now. Authorities in Beijing have locked down a part of the city after at least 79 new coronavirus cases were reported. The new infections are linked to a wholesale food market. Officials there are now tracking down around 200,000 people who've recently visited the market. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong. Ivan, so much in this story. You can give us the latest testing, sheer significant size of tracing here, and another market. What more do we know? Well, doesn't this just underscore really how pernicious this virus is, that after China has been opening up really over the last month or two, uh, after the first wave of the infections, uh, erupted across particularly Hubei province. Now suddenly you have, since last Friday, at least 79 cases discovered, locally transmitted, and tracked back to this enormous market in the south of Beijing where that supplies more than 80% of the fruits and vegetables and also sells meat and, and seafood uh, that helps basically feed the Chinese capital. And it's prompted the authorities to shut down completely, lock down at least 11 residential compounds around this Shinfadi market. Uh, they have launched uh, a very impressive testing regime, testing around 79,000 people, sorry, 76,000 people with nearly 200 uh, sample collection points around the city. It's, it's forced the authorities to postpone the reopening of elementary schools, to cancel sporting events. They're not going yet in the direction of a of a complete province-wide or city-wide lockdown but there are real signs of concern since already they've detected some cases in neighboring provinces that they've traced back to the Shinfadi market 
And the local authorities have announced they're going to try to do contact tracing for up to 200,000 people that they believe to have moved through this market since the beginning of this month. So uh, an enormous logistical challenge. And it'll be really important to see, can they stop this latest outbreak from spreading any further? I mean, 76,000 tests for 79 known cases. The scale of the response here, I think, is illuminating, Ivan, but very quickly because it, it centers on supply chains. They're saying this may have come from imported salmon. And that raises all sorts of questions. Just quickly, what do we know on that? I think we need to be really skeptical about this. One researcher mentioned they saw traces of the virus on a cutting board that had some seafood on it, imported salmon. It's already prompted some supermarkets to remove that product uh, from their shelves. But up until now, I don't believe the scientists have indicated that we can contract this virus uh, from food that's been traveling around. So before we jump and get scared about this, I think we need to know an awful lot more. Uh, There's a lot riding on this all around the world. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Ivan, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Ivan Watson there to the UK now. It's back to business on the English high street of sorts. The country's easing its three-month lockdown, allowing non-essential shops to reopen. Anna Stewart has been checking the pulse there for us in London. Anna, I believe you're outside Selfridges, clearly well-known landmark in the UK. What kind of activity have you been watching this morning? It's been really interesting, Julia. There were some lengthy queues first thing, particularly outside some of the iconic stores like the Nike store in Oxford Circus, the Apple store. But so many of the people there weren't there to purchase new things. A lot of them were there for repairs and for returns. Outside Apple, 80% of the people I spoke to in that queue were there for a repair. So that's not such good news for retailers hoping to get lots of cash in the till after nearly three months of being closed for business. Now, the queues have dissipated somewhat, but you can see behind me on Oxford Street, it is really busy. And in the UK, you don't have to wear a facial covering out and about. It's only on public transport. And there isn't much of a one-way system here. Everyone is just milling around as normal. It feels bizarrely back to normal, if I'm honest. Uh, The shops. Now, it's interesting the different guidance uh, that they've used. Some of them have followed government guidance, the absolute letter. So for fashion stores, for instance, that means uh, not being able to have a changing room that is open. People can't try things on. However, that was just advice from the government and many have decided to break away from it. Selfridges, uh, this iconic department store, for instance, you can try clothes on, but you are told, and I went in in the name of journalism, I did go shopping, Julia, and I was told that if you want to try something on, you really have to want to buy it because they have to quarantine clothes for 72 hours afterwards. So... It does feel a little bit different, although I have to say on Oxford Street, it's almost pre-pandemic normal in terms of the footfall. It actually feels incredibly busy here. Julia? In the name of journalism shopping, Anna Stewart, that will be remembered. But, you know, I was just looking, as you were talking there behind you, there are people wearing masks. There are people that have masks that aren't wearing them. What's the etiquette when you go into a store? Do you have to wear a mask? You don't have to. And you know what? It's different in each shop. Some shops have taken your temperature on the way in. Some don't. Facial coverings and masks are not mandatory at all. Some people are wearing them. Some people are really trying to keep a distance within shops and some people aren't. It's incredible how there are many shades of grey, really, when it comes to this new normal of social distancing and shopping in particular. It is day one. So it'll be interesting to see whether all the shops sort of fall into one line of guidance in the next few weeks, I guess. Yeah, we're in a global experiment Anna, thank you for being there to bring it to us. Anna Stewart there in London. Thank you. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. 
deadly police shooting sparks new outrage in the United States. A 27-year-old black man was shot and killed in Atlanta as he was running away from two white police officers. Dan Gallagher has all the details. Protest against police brutality pressed on for the 20th day in cities across the country, including Atlanta, outside this burned-out Wendy's. Here, a memorial is growing in memory of Rayshard Brooks, who was shot and killed by police Friday. Last night, the Fulton County Medical Examiner ruling the 27-year-old's death a homicide, saying he was shot two times in the back. This police body cam footage showing the start of the interaction. Watch an Atlanta police officer respond to a call reporting a man asleep in his car at the Wendy's drive-thru. What's up, my man? Hey. What's up, man? Hey. Hey, man, you're parked in the middle of the drive-thru line here. Officer Devin Brosnan asks Brooks to move his car. He eventually does to a parking spot close by where Brosnan asks... Okay, how much are you drink tonight? How much? How much is not much? Uh, about drink, like 12 today. Brosnan calls in another officer to conduct a DUI test. Yeah, I got a guy sleeping in the Wendy's parking lot. Smell alcohol. Hard to wake him up. He's fumbling with his license. Right? That's when Officer Garrett Rolfe arrives on the scene. Brooks agrees to a breathalyzer test and tells the police... I know, I know. You just saw your job. Rolf tells Brooks that he's had too much to drink and tries to handcuff him. That's when Brooks begins to resist. Hey, hey stop on! You're going to get tased! Video from a witness shows Brosnan get his taser ready. Brooks grabs it out of his hands, seen on this dash cam video, before running away. Rolf fires his taser and follows. At this moment, surveillance video shows the incident take a deadly turn. During the chase, Rolf reaches for his handgun. Brooks turns back and appears to fire the taser, and Rolf shoots his handgun three times. The officers eventually provide medical treatment on site before an ambulance arrives to take Brooks to the hospital, where he's later pronounced dead. After the shooting, Rolf, who shot Brooks, was fired from the Atlanta Police Department and Brosnan placed on administrative duty. But that's not enough for Brooks' wife. I want them to go to jail. I want them to deal with the same thing as if it was my husband who killed someone else. If it was my husband who shot them, he would be in jail. He would be doing a life sentence. They need to be put away. The Fulton County District Attorney says his office is weighing charges against the officers and a decision could come as early as Wednesday. If that shot was fired, for some reason other than to save that officer's life or to prevent injury to him or others, then that shooting is not justified under the law. Atlanta's mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, believes that Brooks' death was entirely avoidable. This was not confrontational. This was a guy that you were rooting for. And even knowing the end, watching it, you're going, just let him go, just let him go. Let him call somebody to pick him up. A former U.S. Marine has been convicted of espionage by a court in Moscow and sentenced to 16 years in prison. The court delivered its verdict after Paul Whelan, who denies spying, was tried behind closed doors. The U.S. ambassador to Russia said the trial was, quote, a mockery of justice. Philippines journalist Maria Reza has been found guilty of cyber libel. 
Advocates of press freedom have called the prosecution a politically motivated attack by President Rodrigo Duterte's government. The case against Reza hindered, hinged on an article that came out in 2012. That's two years before cyber libel laws came into force. Still to come here on First Move, an antibody cocktail that could give temporary protection from COVID-19. We speak to the chief scientist at Regeneron as its drug enters human trials. And as the pandemic disrupts supply chains, Alibaba's positions itself as the first port of call for wholesale buyers. All that coming up. Stay with us. You're with First Move. Back to first move. U.S. stocks remain under pressure pre-market this morning with the Dow set to fall more than 2%. As you can see, investors, I think, pondering whether the spring fling that saw stocks rise more than 40% from their March lows is now in jeopardy as COVID cases rise around the world. There's also a flight to safety happening in bonds. We've got U.S. Treasury yields moving lower this morning too. All prices also under pressure after tumbling some 8% last week. BP announcing today that it's writing down the value of its assets by some $17.5 billion. The oil giant announced a plan last week to lay off some 15% of their workforce. Now, as markets drop on fears of a second wave of coronavirus cases, our next guest offers cause for hope. Regenerant Pharmaceuticals created an antibody treatment for Ebola in just six months. Now it wants to go one better, saying it hopes to get its COVID-19 drug to patients in just five months. It's still unproven. Human trials began last week. And two papers on the antibody cocktail they're creating are being published today. Joining us now is Dr. George Yankopoulos. He's founding scientist, president and chief scientific officer of Regeneron. George, fantastic to have you on the show with us once again. I remember speaking to you last time at the height of the crisis here in New York, and you certainly gave our viewers hope, I believe. Just explain how rare it is to be publishing two papers in a renowned scientific journal at the same time as trialing a drug on human patients. Yeah, as you said, it usually takes years from publishing fundamental discoveries to translating them to patients. And so obviously this speaks to the record time under which we've all been trying to operate throughout the bio industry, but particularly here at Regeneron where our scientists have been working 24 seven to try to bring this to patients. Cause as you know, we were at the epicenter. Uh, we saw how devastating it is and it's our life's mission to try to make a difference here. Explain why a cocktail of antibodies for treating patients that currently have COVID-19 or trying to prevent someone catching COVID-19 is so important. Well, as is all common knowledge now, the whole point of vaccines is to make these antibodies that make you be able to resist the virus. We pioneered making these antibodies outside of the body, growing them up in big bioreactors, giving them back to patients. Most notably, as you said already, for Ebola, where it worked really impressively in a much more universally lethal disease. What we've now realized and shown in these papers is that one antibody, this is what a lot of people are trying to do, just get the best antibody out of, out of patients or out of a vaccine. Just one antibody is not enough. You need to put a combination of them together, a cocktail. 
We actually learned this first for traditional viral drugs, as in AIDS, HIV. The original drugs worked, but very rapidly, there was development of what's called drug resistance, viral drug resistance. And then they realized that if you put combinations of these traditional antiviral drugs together in cocktails, they really, that's what led to control of the disease. That's essentially what we've shown here for these new classes of drugs, these antiviral antibodies that we've been pioneering. That one, no matter how good, is not enough. You put them together, not only does it seem to control the virus better, but it prevents viral escape mutations, something we've all been hearing about, something a lot of people are worried about. So it basically learns, it, it understands one form of antibody and finds a detour path. So you're still at risk from a mutated version of the virus. What you're saying is if you combine two different antibodies, you just raise the likelihood that you fight this, that the body fights this. Exactly right. The virus mutates. It learns to get around any single treatment. If you simultaneously hit the virus in two or more different places, it looks like the virus is very hard for it to learn a way to get around that. You've also worked hand in hand with the FDA here as well in order to move this process far more quickly than we've ever seen in the past. Normally, it would take three phases of trials in order to get this to a point where you can start using it on patients and you've managed to collapse that into one. Is this a blueprint for how we operate going forward or have we, not in a negative sense, but have we cut corners here that perhaps we won't in the future? Well, everybody is really working 24-7 to avoid cutting the corners, to do the right thing. The mm. FDA is in charge first, protecting our safety, but they've worked with us to come up, as you said, this very innovative Phase one, two, three, adaptive design, where you seamlessly go through all the phases, but in a very careful, very high oversight manner. So hopefully we don't put anybody at risk. But as you said, we're all working so hard to combine what normally takes years into months to try to really make a difference. How soon then are we talking about you being able to use this? And I'm assuming it's going to be initially on frontline workers, those that are treating patients day in, day out, whether it's to treat their own virus, but also to try and help them not catch it in the first place. Yeah, well, we're working with the FDA on several different kinds of trials. One trial is to actually treat people who are already infected, either in right. the early stages or the later stages. We showed with Ebola, the earlier you treat, the better. We're also doing separate trials to try to prevent or prophylax, as you said, the most high-risk individuals, those at the front lines. Uh, the hope here, as we showed with Ebola, is that not only is this going to be a preventative approach like with a traditional vaccine, but if somebody is already sick, especially at the early stages, hopefully we can really shut this down and make them better. How the hope is the that with this, with, this, with this adaptive approach, we may get answers within a month or two. And that means that maybe by the end of the summer, if all goes well, and there's a lot of risks, this is biology and medicine, you can't predict things mm. perfectly here. If all goes well, possibly by the end of the summer, we'll have enough information and data that the FDA will feel comfortable making this treatment uh, and preventative approach perhaps more widely available to more people. I think we have to explain the difference as well. This is not a vaccine. These antibodies don't last for a prolonged amount of time. How often... Are we assuming that someone would continue to have to take this antibody cocktail in order to keep that prevention up? 
That's a great point. Uh, that's something that we're testing in the clinical trials. We think that these will work at least for a month so that you'll have to take a treatment once a month or once every couple of months or once every three months. We'll be testing that in the clinical trials. But that's why we still need a vaccine because a vaccine is going to be able to perhaps provide permanent protection for more people. And cost per treatment? You know, we're not even thinking about that right now. In fact, we're working with the government to see, you know, ways in which we can distribute this and make this available without us even being involved in costing the product. Amazing. You and your team, phenomenal. Thank you so much for the 24-7 work that you've been doing for months now, I know, and I'm sure still doing it. Keep in touch, please, and stay safe. Dr. George Yankopoulos, the President, Chief Scientific Officer of Regeneron. Thank you for that. The Market Open is next. To first move the clapping there for the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange this Monday. U.S. stocks kicking off the week with some pretty sizable losses. I'll give you a look at that. It's the cyclicals, airlines, banks, energy shares that are all sharply lower in the session today. We've got the Dow off more than 2.4%. Morgan Stanley warning today that stocks could actually fall another 7% following last week's 5.5% pullback for the Dow. That's pretty precise. But they also argue, however, that this pullback is, quote, healthy and that stocks will recover quickly. They see small caps, mid cap stocks and economically sensitive cyclicals like autos, retailers, and as I just mentioned, the airlines leading in the next leg up. These of course have lagged at least until last, the last couple of weeks or so. We're also approaching another significant milestone in the COVID-19 crisis. There are now close to 8 million confirmed cases of the disease across the globe and concerns remain over how rising cases will impact economic reopenings. Petya J. Powell will discuss that during two days of testimony before Congress this week and no doubt argue that Congress needs to do more too. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, lots to discuss in there. Healthy? What do we think of that? Is a consolidation period or a pullback that we're seeing healthy given the rise that we saw? Yeah, I think that the big pullback that we're seeing potentially today, uh, you know, coming off of last week's, uh, you know, drop in stocks is probably needed, Julia, because the market ran up so aggressively from mid-March. We basically had Wall Street saying that this could be just a one quarter or two quarter blip. Even if it's a recession, it may soon be over and we could be back on the upswing. And I think that that just doesn't jibe with reality. And now we obviously have concerns about a second wave of cases across the country. And that is making people reevaluate some of these big speculative moves that we had in airline stocks and other leisure stocks that had been uh, rallying on hopes that people would try and get back to normal. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow said over the weekend that a V-shaped recovery still is possible. When I, when I look at the stock markets, I always remind myself that 85% of employment in the United States is outside of the companies that form these major indexes. Can you have a V-shaped recovery in stock markets while still having a L-shaped or a U-shaped, whatever you choose to call it, in the real economy? Can we see that? Yeah, I think it's going to be difficult for 
us to have a V-shaped recovery in the economy, even if the markets get over this latest bout of volatility and kind and wind up bouncing back. So remember, we have this scenario right now where the markets are a little bit divorced from reality. Think of a lot of investors are making speculative bets, short-term bets, the kind of Robin Hood crowd, if you will. I wrote last week about how millennial investors seem to be coming into this market, making short-term trades. And then also, even if you have a V-shaped rebound in the markets, it's going to be difficult with an unemployment rate that's not going to normalize for probably years, according to many experts, including Fed Chair Jay Powell, to have anything that looks like a normal economy. So I think that people betting on a V-shaped economic rebound, it's a bit misguided. Maybe it winds up being like the Nike swoosh, so you still have that decent long tail, but hopefully it's not a W-shaped recovery where we have a double dip. I think that's the big fear now, that all these second wave of cases creates an even bigger downturn. Even if we have a slight rebound, you wind up having the economy backsliding. Yeah, got to remain vigilant. No complacency, no room for complacency, whether you're a policymaker here or an individual facing the risks here. Paul, great to have you with us. Paula Monica. Now, before the coronavirus pandemic struck, Alibaba had its eyes on the U.S. business-to-business market. Now, as the world works from home, the Chinese giant sees a big opportunity for wholesale suppliers. Inside China, Alibaba is used a lot like Amazon in many ways, but it also offers a huge marketplace for wholesale goods around the world, too. Well, it's now simplifying logistics and payments to help American suppliers digitize their business. And it's even holding virtual trade shows to connect buyers and sellers. John Kaplan is behind it all. He's the president of North America and Europe at Alibaba.com. And he joins us now. John, always great to have you on the show. Just give me a sense of what you're seeing right now for these American businesses in particular and compare it to perhaps where we were this time last year when we spoke about what you were doing for U.S. businesses. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, The U.S. small business owner is uh, using Alibaba.com like they've never used before. You know, we've seen over 100 percent growth in transactions involving U.S. businesses uh, in the last couple of months, uh, year over year, tremendous growth. And like you mentioned, we've launched Alibaba.com freight to simplify the logistics and Alibaba.com terms to simplify uh, payment uh, terms cross-border for the first time. And then, like you said, we've just uh, created digital trade shows to make it simple for people working from home like I am to meet and discover great new suppliers around the world, or if you're a seller, for you to get new customers in over 190 countries. Just talk about how many companies are now actually using the platform and where you've seen this dramatic spike in terms of products I'm assuming things like PPE, given the demand, is one of the real winners in terms of people buying and selling. Yeah, it's, it's been the data is remarkable to look at. Right. Mm. We've had 10 to 20 times growth in medical equipment, you know, the machines that make PPE or the PPE itself. We've seen a surge in, in the sale of yoga uh, gear because people want to be comfortable when they're home or educational toys up 50 percent. The same with outdoor furniture, up just about 80%. So we're seeing this big shift in the, in the U.S. economy and that the, the sort of creative and innovative distributors and wholesalers are re, reorienting their supply for the post-COVID world. You know, as people need to get digital and go global is really the essential requirement for, 
for businesses here in the United States. You, know, you and I discussed this in the past and you were saying, look, this is about allowing businesses of all kinds to go outside of their locality, to have the much bigger right. access to customers, to supply chains all over the world. How much time in that growth have we just cut out as a result of people necessity actually being the key here and people driven to establish these connections over the space of just a few months? Yeah, Julia, I think that's a great question and a great point. You know, I think we've seen 20 years of acceleration for businesses going digital. You know, it's not a it's not a question of if you do it, it's just how quickly you can do it. And our, the Alibaba.com tools are so simple to use, whether you're a buyer looking for supply or you're someone who wants to sell to 190 countries, getting on the platforms easy to do and that and it's an imperative for folks to have a real marketplace strategy to grow their business in this uh, you know, shifting, transforming economy. You know, I made the loose connection there to uh, a comparison with Amazon, which I know is relatively uncomfortable for Alibaba because you actually you work very differently. But when you add the payments, you add in the logistics for these companies as well. A comparison with facilities like, I guess, PayPal Square is a more apt comparison. Just describe what you see the growth like in that part of the business now as well. Sure. So um, historically, if you were sourcing globally, you basically had to pay up front for your goods. So you paid before you ever the goods ever got on a boat or on an airplane to come. With Alibaba.com terms, you now it's free for a buyer, and you pay 60 days after the goods ship. And this is a dramatic shift in how the working capital and cash flow can work for an American business. And we think that's a really important step forward as folks need to invest in their staff, in their marketing, in reorienting their business for the changed economy. Talk about churn here, John. Have you seen mm. new businesses come onto the, onto the site and have you lost businesses as well? Can you give me a sense? Because we're all trying to gauge how much damage has been done to small and medium-sized enterprises in the United States, but clearly around the world too. Yeah, so th that's a great question. Well, we, we see the U.S. is a third of the traffic on Alibaba.com comes from U.S. small businesses and medium-sized businesses. Um, and that's actually growing really rapidly. So we actually don't see great evidence of uh, our customers uh, churning. We all know that to be true, that it's happening, the, the Main Street business, the restaurant, et cetera. Our customers primarily are manufacturers and wholesalers, and they are um, – you know, they, they've been knocked down, but they're not out. And we're optimistic about what the future can look like for the businesses that are using Alibaba.com. Yeah, we like optimism on this show. And um, I'm still astonished. 20 years of growth done in the pace of just a few months. The other side of yeah. this, this should really help, which is key. Yes. yes. John Kaplan, great to have you on the show, as always. Thank uh, you for having me. Yes. Come back See you soon. soon. Thank you. The I present will. there of North America and Europe at Alibaba.com. All right, coming up on First Move, it's off to the races for car trading app Vroom. We speak to the CEO next. Welcome back to First Move. Going public during a global pandemic and an economic crisis. All in a day's work for online car sales company Vroom. Speeding out of the gates at its NASDAQ listing last Tuesday, where the stock closed up more than 100% on its first day of trade, Let's talk about the roadmap from here with the CEO of Vroom, Paul Hennessy. Paul, great to have you on the show. A uniquely interesting time to, uh, to list 
I think. But when I look at your share price and I see a 117 percent rise, I believe, on your first day of trade, I wonder whether you left some money on the table. Is there a bit of frustration there? No, not at all. We're, we're enthusiastic that our investors uh, have, have greeted us so well and have been enthusiastic about the Vroom model and really, more importantly, what we're doing for our customers. So we're, um, we're thrilled with the outcome. Online everything right now with people stuck at home. And I was fascinated as I was looking at the used car sale market. It's less than 1% right now online. Talk to me about how you see the growth opportunity panning out for this part of the market. Yeah, that's part of our uh, our excitement, Julia. The the eight hundred and forty one billion dollar annual used car sales market uh, with the low penetration that you mentioned, less than one percent e-commerce penetration. That's the opportunity. And what we've seen, honestly, uh, over the past couple of months and the trend over the past couple of years is more and more uh, customers are turning to models like ours because they simply want a, a better way to buy and sell their vehicles. And and Vroom does that for them. So we, we really like the, the, the fact that e-commerce is really coming our way. And it's one of the last verticals uh, to really go full e-commerce. And so we just see that as as massive runway for the business. A lot of people will be looking at this going, I would never buy a car online. It's too high risk. What about the payment? I don't get to see the car. How do you cut out the risk for both the buyer and the seller here? Because this is key. Yeah, it, well, it starts with selection and it starts with uh, pricing transparency. Those are two of the huge uh, concerns of consumers. And by showing them lots of photographs, by giving them great pricing, by full transparency, no negotiations, that eases customers' mind by being able to offer everything that they could do in a car dealership without ever having to go to a car dealership again. That eases their mind. Then I think at the end, delivering a contact-free uh, delivery in the driveway, which makes them feel better about the transaction, combined with a seven-day test drive, uh, I think that's what gets customers all the way through the process and not just gets them through, but allows them to be excited about the entire process. The beauty of the test drive is they can actually use the vehicle in places they would normally uh, use the vehicle. So instead of a, a trip around the dealership with a stranger in the car, they can put their family in the car and drive the car for seven days. And if they're not satisfied, they can return the car, no questions asked. Yeah, it makes sense. What kind of increased demand have you seen through the last three months as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, I would say not surprisingly, uh, customers that want to experience, uh, you know, social distancing, customers that have been uh, issued stay-at-home orders, they're turning online to get all sorts of products, including used cars, delivered to them. And so our our demand is strong. And again, you know, we we've seen data that customers now are twice as likely to buy a, a car online versus uh, merely three months ago. So we think, again, the market's completely moving our way. What about the impact, at least in the short term, of Hertz, their bankruptcy? They've got, what, 20,000 used cars now listed, uh, trucks, SUVs for sale. What kind of impact do you think, if any, that has on your business? 
Yeah, we, we've always been a partner of Hertz. We've always um, purchased cars from Hertz. And we, we see that there will be, you know, an increased amount of supply. But because of Room's agile business model, we're buyers of those those uh, vehicles. And as buyers, we're actually getting better pricing on those vehicles. And then we're able to pass those great prices on to consumers. So, again, I'm not sure how the entire bankruptcy uh, scene for Hertz is going to play out, but we'll be opportunistic in our relationship with them. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody does at this stage, quite frankly. The key differentiating factor for you, though, is in terms of warehousing space, you're incredibly low maintenance in that regard. Explain this as part of your business and what potential impact that will have in terms of timing to profitability, because I know you're not yet profitable. Right. Well, Broom takes an asset light model. That means uh, we we don't feel the need to build uh, a large uh, building infrastructure, reconditioning centers. We don't feel the need to build uh, fleets of trucks because there are great uh, uh, national fleet providers out there. There are great infrastructure already in place. And so Vroom moves all of that into the variable model while delivering high quality units to, uh, to our customers. Because we've got low uh, low capital into the business, we fundamentally return a higher return on invested capital to our investors, and that, that allows us to get profitable at a significantly lower number of units. So, yeah, we've got a clearly a, a path for growth, but I think equally important uh, a path to profitability. This year, next year. Yeah, we're not we're not giving a, a specific timing on profitability. There's there's a lot of unknowns in the market, but we've set a target for ourselves at around two hundred thousand units. Uh, we think that the business ought to be uh, ought to be self funding, so we'll be evaluating that target over time. Here you go, sneaky question to ask twice. <laughs> CEO of Room there, so keep in touch. Great to chat to you. Will. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks so much. Joining, first move. Take care. All right, coming up here on First Move, Beyond Borders, Europe drops some of its restrictions, but will travellers be willing to take to the skies once more? That's next. Welcome back to the show. British airline EasyJet is back in operation after being grounded for 11 weeks by the coronavirus pandemic. Its first flight taking off early Monday for Glasgow from London's Gatwick Airport. Meanwhile, across Europe, people are slowly returning to the skies, but with one or two or lots of adjustments. Our Fred Blyken has more. As Europe reopens many of its borders and airlines hope to get some business back, at Lufthansa's check-in in Frankfurt, it's clear much has changed. Of course, keeping physical distance is almost impossible when you're on an international air journey. That's why Lufthansa and many other airlines have a policy of asking all of their passengers to wear masks both in the airport and on the plane. Inside the terminal, a lot of physical distancing measures, but upon boarding, no more. Purser Mike Lauterkorn hands out disinfectant wipes, but otherwise, he says, passengers don't need to change their behavior much. The only thing we ask the passengers is that they wear the mask the whole time. Uh, only if they drink or eat something, they can take it off. Like many European carriers, most of Lufthansa's fleet remains idle ever since the coronavirus outbreak. The company recently secured a bailout of about $10 billion to help it survive the crisis. But our flight from Frankfurt to Porto is packed. 
So as you can see, we're all sitting pretty close together. And that's one of the dilemmas that airlines like Lufthansa, but many others as well, face. On the one hand, they need a hygiene concept that works, but it also has to convince wary travelers that it's safe to get back on planes again. Some travelers a bit concerned. It's also a little bit scary, I think, because you never know what you might catch or not. I'm a little bit surprised because I thought, actually based on the coronavirus, we are sitting very, very close. Lufthansa says state-of-the-art air filters on the planes make infections unlikely. The medicines say that more than 99% of those um, uh, viruses are going to be taken out by those filters. The pilots, by the way, always have to wear masks on the ground, but never in the air, the captain says. It's the face, it's the expressions are very important if you communicate with your, with your colleague, you know, and you have some strange situation, it's good to see. Uh, is he in fear? Before landing in Portugal, the crew hands out leaflets on how to prevent infections. As airlines try to convince travelers that holiday air travel is possible without risking new spikes in coronavirus infections. Fred Plaikin, CNN, Porto, Portugal. Wow, and that flight looked pretty full. A look at the future. All right, let's take a look uh, one last time at what we're seeing for U.S. stock markets. All the major averages sharply lower this morning, though, as you can probably remember, we are off the lows at this moment. The Dow down some 2%, taking the biggest hit. All 30 stocks in the Dow are lower with the likes of Boeing, Exxon and Caterpillar seeing the biggest losses. One word, cyclicals. All the S&P 500 sectors are lower too. the energy sector faring the worst down by around 4%. BP News, of course, this morning was the focus with them cutting, writing down $17.5 billion worth of assets. A quick look at some other markets there too. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Your first move this morning, as always, to take care of each other and yourselves. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.